0: God bless. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your grace, your mercy. We thank you that our sister and friend Colleen is feeling better. And we pray that she would continue to feel better, that the pain would subside, and that her strength and appetite would increase Lord, I pray for Krista, who's pregnant with twins, Lord, and is worried about her mom and the stress that is on her, not just because of the babies and twins, but because of her mom, Lord, may you give her peace, rest, and help her not to uh, be overwhelmed as well. And I thank you for all those who have reached out and have been a help to them and we thank you that you hear and care and listen to our prayers lord bless our time this morning lord i thank you that we have this time together i pray that these words would be encouraging and helpful in our lives and in our growth with you and we do ask these things in jesus name amen well thank you guys for coming on this holiday weekend uh This morning, we are going to be concluding our wisdom series in the book of Proverbs. I'm going to go through a few things in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, But this morning, our talk is entitled Wisdom and Valor. And we are going to be going through Proverbs 31. I'm going to talk about King Who. Put that in your promise book. The Amazon logo. Two Hebrew words, Wonder Woman, who? And information versus inspiration. So let's get started. Proverbs chapter 31, starting at verse 1, says, The words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and prevent the rights of all the afflicted. So we start off first with King Lemuel. But no one knows who this king is. Some say, well, it could be Hezekiah. Some say it could be Solomon. But no one knows. In fact, it could be fictitious. It could be just here so that we could have a story that furthers what we've been going over throughout the book of Proverbs. I I think... That that makes actually more sense as we've been looking at the book and these last verses in this chapter and how they play out. But really, we're just guessing through this book that we've been challenged not to think simplistically. Right, We've been encouraged to look at wisdom as a deep well that we could draw from. That wisdom is a woman and she is crying out on the city walls to all who will hear her. That wisdom is woven in the fabric of creation. And she wants us to come and sit at her table. And as we've seen that... It would seem that this cry is coming kind of to a crescendo in this chapter. But once again, it's doing so in a way that is different than we might think. And so if you're going to kind of put it into this, oh, I know how this is going to go, it's going to take a turn on us. It's going to throw us a curve, I believe, intentionally to force us to think broader, to think deeper, to think more intently. Going on in verse 6, and this is something I guarantee you, you have never seen in a promised book or set of scriptures, okay? Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitterness. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Amen, right? I, I mean... Where is that in the promise books? We, we don't see it. Now, he just went on to say, you know, hey, kings, you're not supposed to do this. In other words, if you're in a position of authority, be in a right mind. But hey, if your life is hard, have a drink. I mean, it seems to be what he's saying here. Right now, it's not an excuse to give in to drunkenness, but we've been looking throughout the book of Proverbs where there are both sides of the spectrum and they're there intentionally because we want things to be very neat and orderly. We want God to be precise. We want the will of God to be so clear that we know what step to take next. And it just isn't. And so, hey, king, don't get drunk. Hey, if you're poor and struggling, have a few, right? What am I supposed to do? You're supposed to live in wisdom. And some of you need to not drink so much. And some of you are uptight. You just need to go have a drink, right? I mean, (laughs) just got to... Take this in stride. And we've been looking that through the book, right? In verse 8, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. In other words, they are not forgotten. And then we come to a part of this... Book the end of the book and the part of this chapter where we talk about what is known as the virtuous woman. And she's like the Protestant and evangelical Virgin Mary, but on steroids, right? If you have grown up in a evangelical church, you have heard of the virtuous woman. You have gone to retreats you have had bible studies you have read books you have learned all about the virtuous woman and all these characteristics and what it is and maybe have lived under this just luminous shadow of who this woman is and I I want to shine some light on these passages, I hope. But starting at verse 10, we are going to go through and read this. And so verse 10 is kind of the foundation and everything builds on top of it. An excellent wife. Who can find? Just let that rest. Okay. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchants. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the staff and her hands to hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor. She reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates while he sits among the elders of the land She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass. them them all charm is deceitful and beauty is vain but a woman who fears the lord is to be praised give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates okay all right everyone feeling good about themselves right now right oh my gosh right Some of these things, right, she gets up when it's dark and her candle doesn't go out at night means she doesn't sleep much, right? It's dark when she wakes up and it's dark when she goes to bed and everyone else is asleep, but she's still going strong. Why is this at the end of this book? Why is this book of wisdom that is personified as a woman now devoted and acknowledging the works of a woman. She appears to be something mysterious as an oracle to this mysterious King Lemuel. And I want to say right off the bat that much of what I am sharing with you this morning comes from Rachel Held Evans' book on... Living the Biblical Womanhood, A Life of Biblical Womanhood, I think it's called. And hopefully we're going to go through it, or you ladies will get to go through it, starting in September, October. And it's something that I think would be just really helpful in understanding maybe a little bit of the things that have been presented to women. And so a lot of what I'm sharing is coming from that book, The Year of Biblical Womanhood. And so... The text says that the king was taught, this was taught to him by his mother. And although the genre of royal instruction is familiar in this literature, this poem stands out. It is a representation of the queen mother as the source of wisdom and remains the longest, most flattering tribute to women of its time. The subject, a 22-line poem, The Wife of Noble Character, is a clear expression of the book's celebrated virtue of wisdom. And so let's not lose context of everything we've been looking at throughout the book of Proverbs personified as a woman now coming to a culmination of this woman who has this wisdom flowing from her. More than it being a actual woman, it is a personification of wisdom demonstrated in this woman. And the poem is acrostic. So the first word of each line is the first letter of the alphabet in the Hebrew. It's kind of like the Amazon logo, right? Right, You guys know the arrow goes from the A to the Z? And so the whole idea is you can get everything you want from A to Z in the Amazon. Did you guys know that? All right, you know that now. Aren't you glad you came to church? <laughs> learned about Amazon logo. In other words, this woman's got it covered, okay? It communicates a sense of totality as the poet's praising the everyday achievements of, in this case, an upper-class Jewish woman, a wife who keeps her household functioning day and night. She is so accomplished, in fact, that the writers have and the translator have a hard time describing her. And depending on the translation that you read in verse 10, uh, a wife who's noble, who can find her, the words are used in many different ways. The New Century Version says a good wife, an excellent wife, the New American Standard, a competent wife, the common English Bible, a capable wife, the Good News Translation, a virtuous and capable wife, the New Living Translation, a wife of noble character, the New International Version, a virtuous woman, King James Version, a worthy woman, American Standard Version, a valiant woman, the Douay-Rheims American Edition a capable intelligent and virtuous woman the amplified bible now however it's described scholars agree and seem to think that the word is best translated val- valor, a valuant woman she's a woman of valor and there's two words that are used in the hebrew that exemplify that and it's pronounced "ishit." Hiel. I know it sounds weird. Don't laugh and you're not in junior high anymore like some people. Okay. These two words mean basically a woman of valor. So all these words that are used to describe this woman, the poem closely resembles just something that's of a historic or heroic poem. Celebrating the exploits of a warrior. Now, in our English translation, we don't get the gist of a lot of these things. But it's a very militaristic nuances that take place throughout this poem. Where it says that she provides food for her family. It's literally prey. Where her husband lacks nothing of value. Literally, it's she gets the booty, like the, the pirate's booty, right? She gets that and accomplishes those things. She watches over the affairs of her household. Literally, she spies on them, verse 27. She girds herself with strength, literally girds her loins. And verse 17, she can laugh at the days to come. Literally, laugh in victory. You see, this is a battle cry Victory, this is someone who is a warrior who is succeeding and winning the battle. That is the representation here. And we begin to see that this poem is another personification more than it is of a literal woman who is doing all these things. According to Erica Moore, the valiant wife is a heroic figure used by God to do good for his people just as the ancient judges and kings did good for God's people by their martial exploits. And like any good poem, the purpose of this one is to draw attention to the often overlooked glory of the everyday. The only instructive language that is in this poem is directed towards men where they are admonished that a thankful husband honor his wife for all that her hands have done. This is not instructing women to do anything. Now, how many of you grew up in church thinking that this was a list for you ladies to have to follow? <laughs> This is not instructing women to do anything. Old Testament scholar Ellen Davis notes that the poem was intended not to honor one particularly praiseworthy woman, but rather to underscore the central significance of women's skilled work in a household-based economy. It's foolish to make comparisons between what we see here in this proverb and the suburban housewife or the working mother in a modern career woman. There is no correlation, and yet many Christians interpret this passage prescriptively, right? As if it's a command to women rather than an ode to women. This then becomes the ideal goals for modern women of faith. This is what you're supposed to achieve. This is what you're supposed to strive to Talk about a burden. Trying to deal with all of this. And yet this Proverbs 31 virtuous woman looms like a beacon over biblical womanhood. She is there telling you all what you're supposed to be. At least that has been presented and that is far from what it is. A woman who keeps her household functioning by getting up while it's still dark. All right, going to bed after everyone else has gone to sleep. She doesn't sleep much. She works to make money, but she has time to care for her home. She plants vineyards. She trades. She invests. She sews. She weaves. I don't know if sewing and weaving are the same or not, but they're separated, right? But she does them both, right? She's got all these talents. She makes fabrics and clothes and sells them. She manages servants. She makes these things, helps the poor. Her children call her blessed. Her husband calls her or praises her man, okay? This resume would make Wonder Woman blush or Captain Marvel if you're not a DC comic fan. We'll throw them both in there, right? This is like, oh my gosh, could this really be a person? And once again, it's important that we have to understand what's being written, the time it's being written, and who it's being written to, okay? Even if this was more than a fictitious story, to make the point, it is written to a person of wealth or royalty who has servants in verse 15. How many of you ladies have servants? (laughs) Ted, put your hand down. You're not her servant, Ted. (laughs) You see, this is really personifying something more. Now, just for fun, I I started uh, Googling virtuous woman and see what came up. And man, there is so much out there that is really, again, a list of how ladies are supposed to live. One website, I thought it was interesting, is... it said that she's not perfect. Thank you, right? But then went on to list all the things mentioned and put 10 requirements of women based on this model. 10 requirements. Notice the language that's there. One is faith. She's a woman of faith. She is to be a bastion of faith to her family. She's married. Yep. You're not married, you're out of luck. No virtue for you, right? (laughs) She's a mother. Again, if you have no children, sorry, you missed out on the virtue plane here or train. Health, as if that's in your control. She has this health. She serves. She has a job, kids, and takes time on the side to serve, Right? Any working moms have time to do anything besides work and be a mom? Finances. She's good with her finances. She doesn't go out buying things for herself. She just makes sure everyone else has these things. Industrious. A virtuous woman works willingly with her hands. She sings praises to God and does not grumble while completing her tasks. And then goes on and lists five scriptures for this all over the place, right? And this is what's driving me crazy, right? These ideas that we pull from things like this, it's not there to set us free. It's there to burden. Hey, by the way, here's this, and here are five verses from all over the place taken in all kinds of context. I'll throw them here to show you women what you're supposed to be. Now, I don't know who wrote this website, but I'm thinking... Probably some guy somewhere, right? Probably some husband. says, Yeah, like, oh, this sounds good to me. I don't know if it's true or not, but it just strikes me in that way. So she's not only industrious, but she's also a homemaker, right? And a homemaker, and they add another six scriptures for that homemaking, to prove that she's homemaking. Time, she's not watching TV or wasting time. On Facebook, there's laundry to be done after all, right? I mean, oh my goodness. And then beauty. Don't forget, she has to be beautiful inside and out. And I'm sorry, but this is a bunch of crap. (laughs) It really is. And it's a total misuse of the verses. It's taking out of context scriptures to fit a culture that it is not referring to at this time. And of course... It's good to carry yourself. It's good to be disciplined. There's a lot of good things here. But to make this a standard for women all over the world in every facet of life is just foolish. There are people who will quote scripture, 1 Timothy 5, to say that women are not supposed to work. They're supposed to be homemakers and to be at home. And they pull the scripture out and throw it out as if there it is. I've got a Bible verse to tell you, women, you're not supposed to work. You're supposed to be at home. Forgetting that the women that Paul was referring to, to Timothy, were all slaves, most of them. How does that fit into your picture? How do you be a slave and not work? If you're a slave, that's your job. You do whatever they tell you to do. So that wasn't the intention. And to take that and use that as a burden to put on women is criminal. It's awful. And it's something that we need to recognize and battle against, right? When we fail to recognize the context of the text, we create a subtext that becomes damaging. This woman of valor is used for women regularly in the Jewish culture. It wasn't used to to exonify one woman. It was given this title to all women in the things that they do. Right? You cook dinner, woman of valor. You bring pizza home, woman of valor, right? I'll take some pizza. You you brought pizza, woman of valor, right? You take care of the kids all day, woman of valor. You go to work and come home and take care of the kids, woman of valor. You take your grandson to the museum, woman of valor. You're in Haiti trying to develop schools and doing work, woman of valor. You're in the hospital, struggling through cancer, but maintaining faith. Woman of valor. You see, this belongs to you. This belongs to all of you who are doing these amazing things. It's not you have to do them all to get the medal. You do a little bit, and we acknowledge you as women of valor. That's the intention. In the Jewish culture, it is not the women who memorize Proverbs 31, but it's the men. In fact, the husband commits the lines to memory so that they can recite it to their wives at the Sabbath meal. And usually it's in a song. They sing in the presence of their children and guests, a valorous valorous woman who can find. Her value is far beyond pearls. This is something that the husband sings to the wife, acknowledging all that she does, and the help that it is to them. These words, woman of valor, is at its core a blessing, one that was never meant to be earned, but to be given unconditionally. It's like their version of you go, girl. That's what Rachel says. It's their version of you go, girl. Woman of valor. Rachel Evans writes, As I saw how powerful and affirming this ancient blessing could be, I decided it was time for Christian women to take back Proverbs 31. Somewhere along the way, we surrendered it to the same people who invented airbrushing and auto-tune and Rachel Ray. We abandoned the meaning of the poem by focusing on the specifics and it became just another impossible standard by which to measure our failures. We turned an anthem into an assignment, a poem into a job description. Beautifully written. You guys got to read this book. The woman described in Proverbs 31 is not some ideal that exists out there. She is present in every woman. Today, And when they do even the smallest thing with valor, woman of valor, it is meant to encourage, to strengthen, and uplift, not to burden. But we have this way of using scripture to bring this sense of burden instead of what it was intended to do. The Proverbs 31 woman is a star not because of what she does, because of how she does it. She does it with valor. So you do what you can do, and you do it with valor. Right? You make crafts for your kids. Do it with valor. You start a nonprofit. Do it with valor. You help your friend who's struggling and go and give them counsel and give them support. Do it with valor. You take these things and you do what you do with valor. Why is this so important? Why are we spending this Sunday talking and concluding a whole book of wisdom? on Proverbs 31, it's not a coincidence. It's not like the whole book is there with wisdom and at the end, oh, here's this Proverbs 31 woman. No, they're connected. The whole idea of wisdom is personified here and it's personified, I think, in a very intentional way for us to recognize how wise it is to give tribute to those who do things but don't get noticed. To do the mundane things that no one seems to appreciate, right? When was the last time your kids thanked you for doing laundry or washing up after them, right? It's kind of something that just goes and then there's this wisdom saying, you know what? There are things that hold it all together that we are going to acknowledge and give value to. And what happens is so many times we want information instead of recognizing what inspiration is. If we could begin to see the Bible as an inspired book of wisdom, instead of just a book of facts and information, if we would allow ourselves the freedom to question and pursue God in what we read, To ask, why is this here? Does this make sense? What about this? To compare it and to say, okay, how does this fit together? What is God trying to say to me? Through all these things, if we would allow ourselves that freedom to question, pursue God in the things that we read, to wrestle with the text, the Bible isn't a book that reflects one point of view. It is a collection of books that records a conversation, even debates over a long period of time. And if we don't see that, we will come up with these cockamamie things like virtuous woman and put it on all the ladies there in our church and tell them they got to live like this. They should do these things. They have to be this way. They have to fill up these things. If they're not doing these things, they're not living up to the potential oh, you're not perfect, but here's 10 things that you should be doing, those kinds of things. When we come to the Bible expecting it to be instructional manual intended for God to give us an unwavering, cement-hard certainty about our faith, we're actually creating problems for ourselves Because the Bible wasn't designed to meet that expectation. We've seen that through this book. That there are opposite ends of the spectrum and we have to find our way. We can't live in this duplicity. Because life isn't simple. Things are complicated. And we have to dig for these things. The problems we encounter when reading the Bible are really problems we create for ourselves when we have these misguided expectations that the Bible is designed primarily to provide clear answers. It's meant to be engaged. It's meant to be studied, wrestled with, thought through. You know, when someone tells me, you know, do you believe that the Bible... Is inerrant. If you don't say yes, you're a heretic. But are poems supposed to be inerrant? Are songs supposed to be inerrant? Right? When George Harrison's saying, "Here comes the sun," did he know that the sun isn't supposed to come? That we actually right is that the wrong way of saying it? Is is that maybe? using those kinds of terminologies is actually making the Bible less than what it is. Trying to fit it into this kind of instructional manual is making little of all the things that are there that are meant to be inspiring. God breathed. God speaking through these things, even metaphors. are, are parables Inerrant? Are they infallible? Or are they meant to be stories that engage? You see, the language betrays the book. I'm not making less of the Bible. I'm trying to help us make it more. I'm trying to help us engage it for what it really is and not limit it to what we want it to be for our comfort level. Because when we do that, then we end up misusing it and passages like this being used to create a burden instead of helping us to see what's really going on. And so this book of wisdom isn't telling us how to live lives, our lives, as much as it is challenging us how we engage life itself. It isn't telling women who they need to be. It's helping us appreciate who they are. Instead of providing us with information to be downloaded, the Bible holds out for us an invitation to join in this ancient and this well-traveled and this sacred text and this quest to know God, the world we live in and our place in it. Not abstractly, but intimately and experientially. See, if we're going to get anything from the book of Proverbs and wisdom, it is going to be these things that God has to be someone that we grow to learn and understand because he is bigger than our ability to comprehend. So we need pictures, we need stories, we need contrasts, we need Jesus. Because telling us about God will never suffice. Living as God gives us a clarity that we need. And so I hope that through this series, you have been challenged to rethink how you enter into the scripture and what you're pulling out of it, that you don't limit it to maybe what you've traditionally been taught, but you allow it to be more. You allow God to be bigger. You allow it to challenge you in areas that maybe you thought, I didn't think that was okay. I didn't know that we could look and talk about these things and that God would be so big and so encompassing and so welcoming. I didn't know that God could be engaged in this way that he actually desires to have conversation with us through scripture and not just telling us what to do, what to think, how to behave, but to wrestle with it and to line it all up to who we see in Jesus, who is our example. So I hope this has been encouragement to you. And I would like for us, especially after this, to recognize that the little things that are being done are valiant, right? How many of you ladies got your kids dressed and here to church this morning? Raise your hand. Women of valor. She's having to get you dressed, Doug. That's that's a different that's a different talk. See, I want you to recognize what it means. How many of you have gone to work to provide for your homes? Women of valor. This needs to be acknowledged. You are acknowledged. Don't let anyone tell you less when God is telling you you're more. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for the challenge that is in these verses. Lord, challenge for us to be a blessing and not to expect a blessing. Lord, I do want to acknowledge all the women, married, unmarried, moms, those without children. Lord, there is valor in the things that they do. Lord, may they recognize that you see this You see them as women of valor. May we acknowledge that and may we be the ones who give voice to this. And I pray, God, that we would reclaim this chapter and the burden that has been placed on women in the church for countless years to live in the standard that is just, who could? And Lord, instead of it being something that is meant to burden, it is actually there to encourage and may encouragement be found, Lord, and may be found by our voices to those around us. We thank you and acknowledge this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. May you find liberty in the wisdom of God. May you give voice to the women of valor in your life. And May God be bigger than you ever imagined as you see him work in your life. God bless you guys. Have a tremendous week. Thank you for being here.